this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, if you've got an app or something, open that up. If you're visiting and you don't have either, uh, introduce yourself to the person next to you and ask them to share. Christians are supposed to share, so they'll probably share their Bible with you. Um, but we're in Acts chapter 20. We are studying through this entire book, the book of Acts, under the banner of what we've called a new normal. But I want to I connect this just to, I think this passage is very helpful for where we're living. So if you're curious about the title, it'll become self-explanatory. The Gospel and Robin Williams. Um, this, this passage is, is the Apostle Paul going to minister to people in a place called Ephesus. And, you know, there's a reality to biblical settings. The place was different. Times were different then, right? Technology was different. The tools of life were different back then. But life was still life. When it comes right down to it, you know, dress different, different schedules, different means of getting from place to place, but life is still life. You know, it, it still has all the, the challenges that a broken world brings to us. It brought to them, right? They're still suffering. Disappointment. Broken relationships. There's crisis. There's death. There's sorrow. There's grief. There's the quest for living a life that actually matters. And it means something. You know, whatever I'm doing in life, does it really mean anything? Or, or does my life feel empty and meaningless? So life back then and life today have got a great deal of similarities. And I, I want to open up with a thought from a fellow named Joseph LeConte. His quote's in your outline from his book, The Searchers. He says, where are we to search for wisdom in this maze of human suffering? Many people turn to faith and eventually turn away. One can hardly blame them. Religious authorities often seem to be of two minds about the reality of suffering. They're either completely dumbfounded or supremely confident about its meaning. Instead of offering guidance or even empathy, they dish out pious platitudes, theological abstractions, or icy warnings about God's judgment. Okay. That could be a fair criticism. That sometimes the nature of Christians who have discovered an answer that has revolutionized their lives is to too simplistically supply that answer into other people's valleys and darkness and difficult and heartache and seasons and broken world. We bump into a world that's taken years and years and years and years to write its storyline of just how horrible and difficult it is, and then we serve up an answer that takes us about 48 seconds to explain it. It's not completely wrong. It's just awkward, isn't it? And so I think we kind of bumped into that this week. You know, those, imagine most of us here saw the news at some point that Robin Williams, uh, actor and comedian, had committed suicide this past week. And, you know, I was affected by that. You know, not, I mean, we, we hear news about people dying. I mean, we hear news about people committing suicide. But, but just watching this, the news stories and, and thinking about that, uh, I, was very, I was very saddened by that. And I don't know, maybe for a number of reasons. I think, I think partly because you look at Robin Williams, he's just a likable guy. You know, you just every picture you see of him, there's, that just doesn't seem like there's no offensiveness about this guy. Just, just a nice, likable guy. Uh, I can remember back, I guess I was 14 years old, when Mork and Mindy came out, right? I remember watching Mork and Mindy. The first season I watched Mork and Mindy, I confess that. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I thought, you know, just the sadness of this man wrapped in depression committing suicide. I thought, what, what strange irony is that? 
This, this is the guy who made all of us laugh all these years. This is a guy who stepped into our world and our complicated lives and distracted us from that and made us laugh. And, and yet the irony of that, he was not laughing on the inside. And then just what struck me the most was just the great sadness I felt for a man whose closing years of his life, for many years, was a battle with feeling okay. Just overcoming the heaviness and sorrow and depression that he battled. And, and it was just quite sad. I think it's sad for anybody who has battled that for a long time and they get to a point where they conclude by saying, I can't do this anymore, I just quit. So all that, I just saw, it was just a kind of a heavy grief to me. And, you know, and this week I'm studying this passage for us today and looking at the story that's here about the Apostle Paul. He's going he's gonna to have a visit with some folks from Ephesus and he's going to remind them about his life and his time there that in 52 AD, Paul is going to show up in a town called Ephesus. And he's got a message for them. He's got a message for everybody there. It's not a, it's not a message for one group that's different than a message for a different. It's, he's got one message for everybody in Ephesus. And, you know, and I got to believe times are different, but there's probably some Robin Williams living in Ephesus. It was a town of 300,000 plus people. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Amongst a vast number of people, there were some Robin Williams there. There were some people living life, battling to live life, trying to find something that works, trying to overcome the heaviness of their own thoughts. And when Paul meets them, he's got something to say to them that he believes is going to help them. Right? And we're going to read Paul's summary of his life amongst these Ephesians. And I, I want us to hear what might help them. I mean, what would you say to the Ephesians? You're going to this group of people 300,000 people, and you're going to just live amongst them for three years, and you've got a message for them. And some of them just are going to be happy and excited people. Some of them are going to look like Robin Williams on the outside, but on the inside, there's a different struggle taking place in their life. What, what do you tell them? What is your message for them? How do you help people in that kind of a crisis? Well, we get Paul's report. In this passage, if you're, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, uh, it, is, it is a 30-year window that takes place. It's, it's events that were recorded just after Jesus Christ has come to earth. He lived about 30 years, spent the last three years going from town to town, city to city, proclaiming a message, declaring who he was. And you know the story, the end of his life he is accused, he is crucified, but God resurrects him from the dead. And then he gives his life to whosoever calls upon him in belief. And then we pick up the storyline in the book of Acts. And so we're, we're following up. What was the impact of Jesus Christ's life, death, his burial, and his resurrection? What was the impact? Well, that's what Acts is about. And by the way, we use terminologies that, that create confusion when you come to read this piece of story in the book of Acts. We, we use Christianity. It's an appropriate word to use, but it, it leaves you in a strange idea. It's like, so this is when Christianity got started, right? This is, this is the beginnings of Christianity. Yes and no. It's the beginning of calling it Christianity. But it was a plan that began in the book of Genesis, it, and if you don't see it this way, here's what you're going to bump into. You're an American who's used to shopping. And you're an American who's used to a variety of ideas. And all these ideas kind of got their own merit, and they're cool in their own way. Oh, and you know, at some point here after Jesus' death, this new religion came along called Christianity. And some people bought into it. And, and it really traveled all over the globe, and it really has had a revolutionary effect. Um, not quite accurate. The book of Acts doesn't begin to tell a new story. It just is the next step in a very old story. And that story goes back to the original fallen condition of man. The book of Genesis where God steps in and says, 
you have fallen from my plan and you have fallen away from me, but I'm going to rescue you. Here's my plan. And he lays that out throughout the entire Bible. And from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible is an unfolding of that plan. God's just telling the same story. It got, that plan got identified with Jews in the Old Testament. Well, that's, you know, that's Judaism. That's, no, this, this is just God's plan to save any of us and bring us back to him. Jesus Christ was a Jew, son of God, who fulfilled that plan. And then Acts shows us Christianity, which is just the label on the next chapter of the same plan. So this is chapters, right? You have a chapter called the fall. You have a chapter called Judaism. You have a chapter called Christianity. But it's one story, one plan from one God to save people. That's what it is. It's not the next religion on the block. It's the one plan God gave. So let's, let's look at Paul's experience in Ephesus. We're going to read in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through verse 27. Paul's traveling. He's trying to go to Jerusalem, and he stops in a town called Miletus. And he calls for some friends. He says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I test to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Lord, thank you for preserving these words. You intended Paul to live this life. You intended these words to be written down and to reveal something to us a couple of thousand years later. Lord, open our hearts to receive what you've written. In Jesus' name, amen. Quick points, back up to verse 17. Paul is calling to him. All right, he's stopped in Miletus. 40 miles or so away is the town of Ephesus where he spent three years. He didn't want to get hung up there, so he sails past, stops in a different location. But he calls to him the elders of something called the church. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible a whole lot, those two concepts matter. The elders are the leaders of something called the church. Now, let me just say, in today's day and age, both of those things wear giant black eyes. Don't they? There's always some leader in the church some official in the organization that's done something that he shouldn't have done. And it's being covered up, talked about, blogged about, etc. So, you know, our tendency is, okay, well, elders, leaders in the church, they got a black eye. And then that whole thing called the church, for goodness sake. Man, my experience in that and blah, 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 blah. Okay, we can easily just jettison both of those things, right? And say, I don't don't need leaders in my life and I don't need the church in my life. Well, can I just, I'm not going to preach on this today, but can you just go back into this verse? And see that in God's plan, God's plan in reaching people and caring for them involves elders and it involved church. And we don't want to jettison that. It's God's plan. It's a, it's a good idea, right? Verse 18, he says, when they came to him, he said to him, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. You guys have a living demonstration of what it means to be a Christian. I lived among you. You know my life. And this is helpful. Paul's identifying, this is what a normal Christian looks like. 
This is the impact of the belief that's in me about the living God. And, and you know my life. And listen, that's, that's clarifying because you and I swim in a bunch of ideas today about the label Christian. Stuff that gets called Christian, it gets used in all kinds of ways. So I don't assume that everybody in here has got the same definition for what a Christian is. So Paul's helpfully clarifying something by the way he lived and what he believed. But, but today, you can make the mistake that's easily made that you associate the word Christian with uh, maybe a code of moral behavior in society. Christians believe certain things. Christians are pro-life. They're not pro-abortion. Christians tend to be conservative in their politics. Christians uh, get labeled being homophobic. Christians are against same-sex marriages. Christians have an idea about how to live life, and it's different than the ideas that other people have, and they're, and they're sort of sometimes rude and imposing of those ideas upon others. That's what a Christian is. And then you open up history books, and you find out the Christians went on crusades, killed all these people because they believed something different. You know, some of that you're not reading. That was Muslims who were going to kill them, so they turned around and killed them first. And that's, that's Christianity, right? Wrong. It has little pieces of stuff that's involved with Christianity in it. People having some convictions and believing some things morally. But that's not the centerpiece. Your morals is not the centerpiece of Christianity. The fact that you dress a certain way and don't dress another way, talk a certain way, live toward people a certain way, handle your money a certain way, avoid certain sections of town, don't stay out late on Saturday nights and do certain things. That's not defining what a Christian is. It's interesting. Paul didn't say, uh, you know how I lived among you. How I organized protests against the prostitution rings in Ephesus that were rampant and they were everywhere. You remember that? We protested outside of the temple of Artemis and all the false gods who had prostitution as part of their worship. And we picketed. You remember my manner of life among you. You remember how I opposed those dreadful liberal Roman taxes that were being used to, to fund false worship and to promote sexuality in the land in which we live where men were, were sleeping with slaves and boys. You remember how I opposed those kinds of taxes in our midst? That makes sense today, doesn't it? that a visiting person calling themselves a Christian in America could, could highlight those things. You remember what I stood for. Paul highlights none of that. Does that mean he approved of prostitution? No, hardly. Does that mean he was okay with the Romans overtaxing people and spending it for purposes that were not good? I don't think he was for that either. But that's not what defines Christianity, and it's not what defined Paul's message Paul was not trying to get you on board with his politics. Paul showed up with a message. And he described his life a certain way. And I'd love to just live in this one verse. Verse 19. I'm just going to skip by it real quick. He just says, I was in Asia. You know how I lived. I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. I was serving the Lord. Now, if you're an old school Christian and you bump into somebody who's been around Christianity for a long time, your grandmother and them, and you kind of ask them, hey, so, so what have you been doing lately? Well, I've just been serving the Lord. I remember Jesus' grandmother used to talk like that. You know, you just would catch up with, with Edna and well, how are things going? What are you doing these days? I'm just serving the Lord. And that was the way you talked. I think it's a great, great Life statement. You know, everybody ought to have a life statement. You know, I'm what have you been doing? Well, you know, you kind of think a little bit. Well, in, in general, the big guiding principle, what have you been doing? Well, I hope you'd be able to answer that way. I've been serving the Lord. I have recognized that I was created for a purpose and God exists to receive all glory and everything orients around him. So I'm serving him. That's what I'm doing. That's a good life statement. But there's a little stroke of reality here in what Paul says. And, and I want to capture it because I'm going to talk to you about Robin Williams today. I want to talk to you about suffering in life. I want to talk to you about depression 
and heartache and real life. Paul said, I was among you in humility. And I, 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 that, that deserves a message by itself. And I was with you in tears and in trials. I was with you in trials that caused tears. I, I shed my level of tears. I'm the great apostle Paul. I'm here with the greatest message of hope that's ever been preached. But you saw me cry. You saw life hard. Right, Paul, if you want to go read this, I won't take this apart. But first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You go read just that chapter. Just the first 10 verses. It's written by Paul after he was in Ephesus for three years. He writes to the Corinthians. And he describes his own life and some of his experiences when he says, we went through such a trial, such a suffering, such a difficulty that we despaired even of life itself. Really, the apostle Paul said that? While he was serving God, he said that. While he faced life with the way it felt, he said that. Right now, I hopefully will remember this to come back to it later. Um, listen, Paul shows up in Ephesus and he says, your life is broken. I've got a message for you, message of hope. When you and I step into people's lives and we bring them the message of hope of the gospel, sometimes we, we feel like strange salesmen who have to act like this message of hope has made everything have a rainbow over my life. Everything's a rainbow for me because I met Jesus and all I've done is giggle and laugh ever since. And you know what? If you meet Jesus too, and then people come to Christ and they find out there's still this thing called tears and trials. I cannot let everybody off the hook. You, you don't always have to be on your best foot around here. I live life too. I know what it's like to feel like I'm being squished by something. I feel the weight of it. I'm discouraged. I'm fighting for faith. I live in a fallen world, don't you? Fallen worlds don't feel like heaven. They don't feel like glory. They, they feel like surprises and sneak attacks and weighty and difficulty. And who knew that was going to happen? And I got a small brain anyway, so I can get surprised easy. And the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, with all that he knew, is saying, listen, I've lived life, and I've shed some tears, and this hasn't been easy. Hey, that's okay. But he still had a message of hope, and you and I do too. Verse 20, he says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Public meetings and house to house meetings Paul was a man with a message. He was not a man with a message about cultural traditions, <clears throat> personal behavior, politics. That was not Paul's message. I think he could talk to you about those things. I think he could point out the fact that, you know, people who walk down that road of sin lead to that kind of destruction. Let me talk to you about that. I think he had convictions about things. I think he was grieved over watching people in conditions of slavery be mistreated. But his message wasn't going to be blurred and obscured by getting entangled in that. Listen, Christianity, you and I would do well to be careful. Not, don't get your convictions up so bad about things that are temporary and associated with our culture that your noise is so loud about your politics that nobody can understand where the convictions about the gospel have gone in your world. You want to live and die and be obnoxious about something? Let it be about what Jesus Christ did on behalf of people. Not about tax structures. And not about temporary government actions that have touched the world this way or that way. Because, you know, you get all animated and freaked out about that. And you've half offended somebody else, and they don't want to hear anything else you've got to say. Congratulations, you're trying to convert them to your politics. And what are you hoping at the end of that conversation? They're going to kneel down and repent and, and become whatever political party you are? So I'm not saying you can't play in the politics world and have opinions about those things, but you are here as an ambassador with a message. Don't screw that message up. 
by making your message so loud about something else. Hold those things lightly. Somebody's got a different view than you, okay, that's cool. Don't let it get in the way of the message. Paul's got a message. It's the message. It's what these people need to hear. It's what we need to hear today. Verse 21. It says, now behold, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem. Well, I'm sorry, 21. He was testifying, he said. I've got a message. I've gone house to house, done this in public. I'm testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Both to Jews and to Greeks. So this is quite a contrast. This is his way of saying, it's my message for everybody. These were diametrically opposed sets of people. Jews were extremely moral. Some people would even say hyperly moral, monotheistic people. They had, they had a rule for everything. They had a rule to keep you from breaking the rule for everything. Okay, that's what, that's what modern Judaism had turned into in this moment. So they had a comment. They had a, a, a way to do every aspect of life that had to do somehow morally with what they believed about God. Not all of that was bad. But they were very, very moral, very religious, very tradition-bound people. Paul said, I've got a message for them. Oh, and by the way, it's the same message that I have for the Greeks. I don't have a message for them that's different. It's the same message I have for the Greeks. Now, the Greeks are polytheistic, pleasure-seekers, live, grab all the gusto in life you can. The gods exist to help us experience pleasure. So they're polytheistic pleasure-seekers which developed, that's why prostitution was so wide open. That's why lascivious living was so wide open. Paul says, I'm going to these groups. I've got one message, two sets of people, people doing life very, very, very differently. They don't need different answers. They need one answer, the same message. So listen, you can be sitting this morning next to some old lady who's looking like she's been in church since, you know, she was born. And you're, you're in here for the first time thinking, you have no idea what I was doing last night and I ain't been in church in forever and I hope the building stays standing. <laughs> okay, I don't, ha- I don't have a message for her and then another message for you. I got the same message for both people, right? <clears throat> what was that message? Verse 21. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's message. That's the message preserved that God wanted to tell the world in the book of Acts. That's the message God still is commending to the world today. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, Jews, Greek, happy, sad. Repentance toward God. And faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word repentance, it it means, it's the Greek word metanoeo. It it means it's a change of mind. I'm going to change my mind. A change of disposition. A conversion or a turning to God. Now there's an implication in this that, you know, repentance is one of the, it's it's kind of a rough edged word, isn't it? Repent, when I throw that out at you, it feels like, huh. Repent, huh? Yeah, that's what that, so that's what that Christianity thing about. It's about telling people they're wrong. That's what repentance has in it, right? Well, yeah, it does. <laughs> Sorry, okay, I can't change it. it. It's, you know, when Jesus, right? Jesus, the ultimate hippie, showed up on planet Earth. Right? I mean, Jesus did life with the common people, hang out in the back of Volkswagens, right? I mean, that's what, this is Jesus, man. This is Jesus movement. Do you know the first word of Jesus' ministry to to the world was repent? Do you know the person who preceded Jesus named John the Baptist? Now, if you ever was a hippie, this dude was a hippie, right? Living out on the edge of town, eating weird food and dressing like a freak, probably had tattoos. Body piercings, I'm sure, whatever. And, you know, his message wasn't, hey, dude, let's just all get along, man far out. Come party with me. John the Baptist's message was repent. The apostle Paul, years later, 30 plus years later, when this has taken place from John the Baptist, is still got the same message for people, repent. Now, repent doesn't sound like something that feels good, but can I tell you that repent is a good word with good news 
attached to it. Because you, at some point, if you live long enough and you're not afraid to do this to yourself, at some point you're going to realize your biggest problem in life is you. Aren't you glad you came all that way this morning to hear that? (laughs) I, I don't have a bigger problem in my life than me. You know what repentance calls me to do? It calls me to turn away from me. I can't tell you any better news than that. Now, the, the words carefully presented here, it doesn't mean, well, let me turn away from me to someone else. Let me turn away from me to narcissism or whatever. No, it's repentance toward God. Let me turn away from me to God. This is the great need of Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, happy, sad. This is the need of every human being. Every human being needs to turn away from themselves to God. And he says, have faith, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That word faith is, it's such a polluted word for us today. We think faith just means mental acknowledgement. Hey, do you believe in God? And what you do with that phrase in your head is, do I think that there is a God who exists? Yeah, I believe in God. That's not the word faith. That's just, you know, a mental checkbox. Is it okay with you if God exists? Sure, that's fine. Yeah, I philosophically disagree with that. That's fine. Listen, you can have God at the North Pole and acknowledge that he exists. You can have God never having been a part of your life. You don't relate to him. You don't trust him. But you acknowledge that he exists. Sure, sure I do. That's not faith. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the message that Paul had, this word is about trusting. It's a word of confidence. It's a word of certainty and guarantee or assurance. It's a, it's a word that's tangled up in, in our word that we call hope. How do you feel about your life? How do you feel about tomorrow? How do you feel about next year? College student, how are you feeling about five years from now? 78-year-old person with aches and pains and difficulty, how are you feeling about next week? What's your hope in your life for this season? You just went through a divorce. What's your hope that you're going to survive this, that you're going to get back on your feet, that you're going to restore your life? You've just lost a child. What's your hope? In this world. That's what this is about. Repentance means turning away from yourself to God. Faith means putting your hope in Jesus Christ. What he did for you and what he's going to do for you. That's what faith is. And when you unpack Paul's life here in the next couple of verses, his life demonstrates that he really had done this. There's a lot of people who would like to call themselves Christians that, that got no ownership of the term. Your life doesn't look like this. Right? This, this, is, this is Paul's life, verse 22. Right? So he's, he's done. He's repented. He's turned from himself. He's put his faith and his hope in Jesus Christ. He says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, right? Okay, so the Holy Spirit's inside of him. I don't know if you have that experience. And if you don't, you need to question whether you're a Christian. For Paul, when he became a Christian, what Jesus did and accomplished was to restore us to God so that God's life would be in us, returned to us. So there's something about another living being being inside of you that that sort of wants to push his way out. Constrained by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. (laughs) Paul, you keep being told, listen to the next of this. Not knowing what will happen to me there. How many of you guys are eager to go places? You have no idea what's going to happen to you. And if you know Paul's resume, he's suspicious. The dude's been beat up, stoned to death, left half dead outside of cities. I don't know what's going to happen to me, but if it's anything like the past, I've got a lot of reason not to go to Jerusalem. But there's this thing inside of me that keeps saying, go, go, go. And then he says, people keep telling me this stuff. Verse 23, all I know is this. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So people keep selling me. Paul, you're going to Jerusalem. Man, I just have this sense from God. 
Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, afflictions and trials and difficulty are waiting for you when you get off the ship and walk in. But I feel constrained to go anyway. That's what Christians do, by the way. Christians respond more to the compelling of the Spirit than they do to the restraining influences around them. Christians do things that are risky. Christians do things that may embarrass them. You're going to do what? What are you, nuts? You're going to look like an idiot. What if you don't have an answer? What if you fail? I don't know. Maybe I will. But I just feel this urgency. I feel constrained by God. I got to do this. That's a Christian. That's not just the freaky apostle Paul. That's a testimony, not of the greatness of Paul, but of the power of the Holy Spirit that he just described. All right? Can you get that clear? Can you stop acting like, well, he's Paul. You know, of course, he's Paul. Paul was a superman. Paul was a man indwelt by a super God. And so are you and I. And so if you're a Christian, you've got this inner impulse that wants to do things, risky things, embarrassing things, hard things, and you do them anyway. Look in verse 24, right? I got all these warnings, but I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. This is a guy who doesn't own his own life anymore. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what owns him. Paul is basically saying, I don't own my life anymore. My life isn't mine. You know, the ambitions and the things that I had, the things I always wanted to do, the way in which I wanted to construct life to make it feel a certain way for me, you know, the, the promotion that it would do for me, the comfort and the ease that it would create for me, I gave up all that. I received a mission from Christ, and that's what I'm about now. His life has been redefined. That's Christianity. Christianity comes in, and it redefines your life. You are not the same person anymore. You have a new owner. The, the, the sign over the building has changed. The product that used to come out of your factory is different. Everything about you is different if you're really a Christian. If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're sitting here today saying, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Redefined? I've kind of always been who I've always been. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Redefined? Okay, this is Paul explaining the basics of Christianity to the people who were in Ephesus, reminding them, remember, this is what I stood for, and this is what I preached and taught. This is Christianity 101. So if what you have is an acknowledgement that there is a God, and I'm sure he exists, and I don't even have trouble with him having a storyline that involves Jesus Christ. I'm cool with that. But redefining me, I don't know if I know what that means. Then I don't think you're a Christian. Normal Christianity involves a radical redefinition with new pursuits. And, And let me tell you why that word repent is such great, great, great news. Because I am predisposed and bent in towards me. Self. That word self used to not be used as often in our English language. It's used everywhere now. I'm wired for self-protection. Self-promotion. Self-improvement. Self-gratification. Self-pleasure. Self-affirmation. Self-acceptance. Self-esteem. I I am, because of the fall, I am turned in on me. I am trying to get everything in my life to hardwire into me, to support me, to make my life feel a certain way. It it is the source of conflict. It's, It's why there's no joy in life. Because, you know, if you live long enough, you realize I can't get people to cooperate with me. What do I got to say to people to get them to realize it's about me, people? (laughs) So the Bible comes along and says here, message number one, repent. Turn away from you and turn to God. 
Now listen, if you've been held prisoner by you at knife point, that's good news, isn't it? I don't know, I mean, sometimes I felt like a, a hostage in a terrorist movie. And I'm the idiot with the mask on and the gun, holding me hostage. That's how this thing's working. So, you know, when the gospel comes along and says, repent, turn, turn from your self-terrorizing activities and turn to God. At some point, my eyes open up and I go, whoo, where do I sign? That's good news, dude. That's good news. Aren't you just sick of being held prisoner by your own fears and your insecurities and your jealousies and your pride? That pulls a gun out on you and makes you compare. Hey, that girl just walked in. Compare yourself. I said, compare yourself. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I'm fat. All right, I admit it, I'm fat. She's skinny, I'm fat. There, you satisfied? Guy puts the gun away for a few moments, you know. And I can come along and say, hey, I got good news for you. I got good news for you. Turn from you and turn to God. See, the only problem is, is when, you're, when your terrorist dresses nice and offers you, you know, I don't know, hors d'oeuvres on the way to the terrorism act, you start thinking, hey, no, I kind of like this. Turn from me, I have to give up the hors d'oeuvres. I don't know if I want to do that. Listen, right after hors d'oeuvres have served, they're going to put a mask on and pull a gun out on you and terrorize you. You are a terrorist. And the gospel comes along and says, I will set you free from you. That's very good news. I got a quote here from C.S. Lewis. You guys will know C.S. Lewis. He was a literary writer in the last century. He was a British fellow. Uh, He gives us the chronicles of Narnia movies and and other type literary devices. But he became a Christian. Uh, Actually, he he was an atheist uh, who turned to Christianity in his late 20s and right about 30 years old. And this, this is interesting in his conversion, what he says about this freedom from himself. In his book, Surprised by Joy, he says, I believe that one of the first results of my theistic conversion was a marked decrease in the fussy attentiveness which I had so long paid to the progress of my own opinions and the states of my own mind. That's, that's about as positive as a spin anybody should put it. Fussy attentiveness, you know self-consumed, self-absorbed, get your head out your navel. That's probably what I would say. But he's a literary writer, so he says it nicer. Self-examination was no longer a hobby or a habit. To believe and to pray were the beginning of extroversion, right? The ability to look outside of me. I had been, as they say, taken out of myself. If theism had done nothing else for me, I should still be thankful that it cured me of the time-wasting and foolish practice of keeping a diary. I'll let you apply that today the way I want you to appropriately needs to be applied. I won't mention Facebook or Elder Self-Publishing. <laughs> Some, you, can you just get liberated if you just didn't have to poach something to keep up? Right, I've got to keep up. They're way out ahead of me now. Uh, what liberation. Repentance is really, really good news when it sets us free from ourselves. Let me just briefly say this before I go back to that. You know, Paul here, he closes out his thoughts with these folks that he's gathered. Verse 26, he says, I testify you to this day that I, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I'm innocent of your blood. I, I mean, how else can you say that, right? Because we're not familiar with those terms. Was Paul saying, I am no longer responsible for you? Why? Because you're not going to put me on some guilt trip, man. Let me just tell you, Ephesians, I'm not going to be on a guilt trip about you and what you believe. Is that why? He says, I'm no longer responsible for you because I didn't shrink from telling you what you needed to hear. I've done all I can do. I have declared to you the message of repentance and faith in Christ. And I am innocent of your blood now. Wow. Paul, were you not innocent of their blood before you did that? Are you and I not innocent of some people's blood until we have testified of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives? That's sobering, isn't it? We shouldn't feel so innocent. Like, ah, 
I don't have any responsibility for people. I don't know. Paul sounded like he had responsibility for people. And the good news is he had responsibility to step in with a message of repentance to set people free from themselves, to turn them to God, to give them really, really good news about their life. You know, when I listen to the Robin Williams story, I think Robin Williams needed some really good news. Anybody who says, I quit, I can't do this another day, and they drastically take their own life. Everything in you as a living being fights that. And he came to a place where he couldn't stand the terrorism any longer. He he needed some really good news. He needed this message. Let me just carefully as a talk about his life and his condition. I don't know much about his life, but I know it's been highlighted a little bit about his depression, his drug abuse. And, and I want us to be careful that we don't jump into very deep difficulties in people with, with what that author said earlier, platitudes. You know, I'm just here to offer some platitudes to you. You've been struggling with this, thinking it through a hundred different ways under the weight of it. But here, I, I got a quick little answer for you. It's unsympathetic. If you would jest, then you would jest. Wow. Really? How's your life been? Your life is that simple? Listen, as a pastor, I'd love it if your life was that simple. Because it would mean you just come to church, I preach a halfway decent message, and you're fixed. I hope you come back next week, but you're probably fixed, right? It doesn't work that way, does it? Even Christians struggle and fight for joy. Right, we, on Tuesdays, we, we meet in this room for prayer. The pastors and I meet, and we share about burdens. We talk about lives that are in need and ministries that are upcoming to affect people's lives. And, and we just spend time in this room. We do it in this room because that's where you gather on Sunday mornings. So we pray for the people sitting in these chairs and we intercede for them. And I just, you know, the guys will remember this past Tuesday, I began praying out of this image in my head of of feeling like I was an EMT worker shown up at some massive earthquake, digging through rubble, trying to find survivors. That's, and as I sort of came out of me, I thought, yeah, that's, That's what life is like. There was this massive fall in Genesis. It was an earthquake of epic proportions. It buried all of humanity in it. And then those of us with this good news message now dig through the rubble to find those who will survive. There's a lot of dead bodies. I mean, it gets hard sometimes just pastorally sifting through broken, difficult, heart-wrenching situations but you're in search of people who need this good news. That's what we're here for. That's what every Christian is here for. We're sorting through the rubble. Christians don't get to escape the real pain in a real fallen world. Don't don't be caught off guard. Don't think, but I I put my hope in Jesus. I'm never going to experience pain. Let me go back to C.S. Lewis for a moment. His book, Surprised by Joy, was an explanation of his conversion. He says, this book is written partly in answer to requests that I would tell how I passed from atheism to Christianity. How far the story matters to anyone but myself depends on the degree to which others have experienced what I call joy. Here's a man who writes about his conversion and the new sign over his life is joy. 30 years later, he would be married for only four years. He would be in his 60s. And his wife would suddenly die of cancer. And it turned him inside out and upside down and shook his world. 
heard interesting, I've heard some things from Billy Graham. I mean, we just greatly respect this man who's walked in our generation. He's later in life, he's lost his wife, he's older, he's in pain. And he struggles. Not so much with his faith in God, but just to live in that environment of difficulty. C.S. Lewis wrote, he actually journaled something under another name that got published and no one knew it was him until years later. People actually observed him going through the loss and the grief of his wife and recommended this book to him. (laughs) I like that. The book was called A Grief Observed. And and I, I read this to you because... This is, this is a reality. We walk with one another. There are moments and situations in your life where there are no words to fix you. You've lost a child. You're suddenly widowed. There are situations that are simply overwhelming. And the best I can do as a pastor is just sit next to you and hold your hand. Platitudes, be careful. Quick answers in that moment, mm. They almost are unloving. Don't let your nervousness to figure out how to fix people make you say things that you shouldn't say. Just sit there and be nervous. Right? L- listen carefully. And if you really want, and if you're in this season or dealing with somebody in this season, I encourage you to get this book, A Grief Observed. This is his own story of his own experience after his wife's death. He says, for in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs. Round and round, everything repeats. Am I going in circles? Or dare I hope I'm on a spiral? But if a spiral, am I going up or down it? How often will it be for always? How often will the vast emptiness astonish me? Like a complete novelty and make me say, I never realized my loss until this moment. The same leg is cut off time after time. Another place he said, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, I keep on swallowing. At other times it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. This detachment, this blankness. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's so uninteresting. Yet, I I want the others to be around me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. And later on, he said something. This is just heartbreaking of the reality of being overcome by grief. He says, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. This is a man whose conversion and whose life in Christ was characterized by the word joy. My life was surprised by joy. This man who knew Christ was then also surprised by how life could feel when it felt like a leg was cut off from my life and my wife is gone and I'm trying to make sense of it and I'm trying to walk through it. Now he, he does walk through this and he does experience God in a healing and powerful way. Guys, this, this is life and, and Christians need to learn not to be so unsympathetic sounding when we deal with people who just got tractored by something and they don't know how to come up for air. John Piper says, the word of God is inexhaustible and the world he made holds countless treasures waiting to be found by clear eyes in search of Christ-exalting joy. And the needs of embattled people who fight for joy will always be as diverse as the people themselves. How can we help Christians who seem unable to break out of darkness into the light of joy? Yes, I I call them Christians. 
and thus assume that such things happen to genuine believers. It happens because of sin or because of satanic assault or because of distressing circumstances or because of hereditary or physical causes. This is, the, this is people's life experience. Now, at the risk of platitudes here, when Paul shows up in Ephesus, Paul, the EMT worker, shows up in Ephesus to dig through the rubble of a fallen world, and he has a message for them. Jews and Greeks, happy and sad, It's a message of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same message. It is a critical message. It is a non-negotiable message. It is Paul's message. It is the message of the Bible. And if you've been studying Acts with us, you're hearing this over and over and over again, aren't you? Because this man traveled all over the world and these words are preserved and it's the same message that comes to us today. Listening this week and hearing the Robin Williams story and it thrust open a discussion about depression in people's lives and how to interact with it, how to engage it, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that's a deep, challenging discussion that I'm, I'm not going to have on the fly. But I just want to clarify something because I want you to not hear something that I'm not saying. How do you deal with depression? How do you deal with the darkness of soul that comes upon people? Am I I saying that you should never take a pill for that? Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that the pursuit of any form of medication to help in those categories is wrong. I don't think Paul's commenting on that at all. My advice to anyone is this. There are negotiable categories that you need to work out. You need to have faith for. You need to sit with your doctor. You need to sort through how you're going to handle those things. And then there's non-negotiable things for Christians. The non-negotiable category of your life, no matter how bad the rubble is, is the message of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're in a dark season and I walk up to you and I say, hey, how are you doing? well, I've got, a, I've got an appointment this week with the doctor and he's going to check my medicines and he's going to check my levels. And, and, and when, when that's where you go over and over and over again, I'm not saying that, that you need to do away with the pills. I'm saying that you need a louder presence of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no pill that can take the place of that. Does that mean you don't need some form of a pill? Maybe there's some things physiologically going on that none of us understand. That I'm not even going to go in that category. If that's what you feel like you need to do, well, then you feel like you need to do that. That's fine. But do not substitute your hope. The transference of hope in this passage is to our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not to the pill. Does that mean I shouldn't take the pill? I'm not saying that. Are you hearing me say that? Don't anybody walk out of here and say, Keats against anybody taking pills for depression. I did not say that. Stop making me say that, some of you. But I am saying this. Every time you put that pill in your hand, you ask yourself about repentance toward God, turning away from you to the living God and transferring your hope to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can take a lot of pills and never do that. And you will not have escaped the terrorism of you, nor will you live in the hope of who Jesus Christ is, what he's done for you and what he will do for you. And your pill can't give you that. It can maybe stabilize your mood, but it cannot give you what repentance and faith gives you. Right? All right, Eric, go ahead and come back up here. Let me me close with a thought for... I've got a lot of folks here, appreciate maybe family members and friends that are here visiting with us. And Listen, I, I get it. I'm, I'm, 
I live life, I live with people, I've got family. My heart goes out to a Robin Williams, a person whose struggle ended so sadly. And, and, and maybe your rubble right now is, is similar to his, or it's just a rubble that you know, I, this is just overwhelming me. Okay, this is, this is God's message. It was God's message to Ephesians, to people who lived in a town called Ephesus in 52 AD. And it's God's message to us today. No matter what pile of rubble you find yourself in, no matter how you're screaming out, trying to get your voice to be heard for somebody to dig you out, the message that God brings to you is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Turning away from you, turning away from building your life for the sake of you, turning away from self-gratification and self-pleasure and self-comfort and self-preservation and self-protection and transferring your hope away from you being able to protect yourself. How about the liberty of you don't need to protect yourself? What if I get hurt? Well, the God of the universe will heal you. What if I get killed, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem? What if they take my life? Well, then I will take you to be with me in heaven forever. You are never without hope until you transfer your hope to yourself. Then you are always without hope. So if you're living in the rubble of your own life, feeling like, I don't feel hope. Listen, trust me, it's because you've put your hope in you and what you can do, how you can fix you, how you can have a better life, how you can afford to have a better life, et cetera, et cetera. And the message of the gospel, the good news is give up hoping in you. Repent, stop doing that. Turn and put your hope in Christ. And he will never fail you. He will forgive your sins, restore you to God and be everything you're ever gonna need him to be in happy times and sad ones, in the C.S. Lewis moments and in the moments where joy defines your life. He will be what you need him to be in that moment. Let's just stand up together for a moment. Just close your eyes for a second because I know life in the rubble is a hard life. And God loved people in Ephesus so much that he raised up a man who would follow Christ into Ephesus and proclaim this message. And he'd send him wherever and he would go wherever. And God loves people in Metairie and in New Orleans, River Ridge and Harahan. And somehow he sent you here this morning to say, I know you're in the rubble. I know you are in the rubble. Here's my message to you. Turn from hoping in you. Put your faith and your hope in me. I've died for your sins, to forgive them all, to cleanse you and release you from them, and to restore you to God. Trust me, hope in me. Listen, if you got your eyes closed just for a second, If this morning you're here and you're aware, I've not had my life redefined. I don't know what you're describing. That's not been my experience, but I'm in the rubble and I would like God to rescue me this morning. And I would like to transfer my hope to him. If that's you, would you lift your hand and let me see it just for a moment. Pick your hand up and say, that's me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, hoist up because I want God to see it more than I want me to see it. And I want you to have the courage to say, God, I want you to see this. If if you recognize you were really in a pile of rubble this morning and you heard a tap, tap, tap so lightly, you'd be screaming at the top of your lungs to get out. So just by you lifting your hand, I just want you to just, that's your way of crying out to God saying, God, don't pass me up. I'm in a rubble, God, I need you. Come and rescue me. Put your hands down. Listen, if that's you, I'm just going to pray a prayer to connect you with God. I think these would represent your words, but you just acknowledge them in your heart. You speak them to God yourself. Lord Jesus Christ, my life 
is in the rubble. My life is broken. It's difficult and painful and I'm confused. Don't know what I've done and don't know where I'm going. But I hear what's been said this morning. I hear it. That your way of rescuing me is to repent and turn away from myself and turn to Jesus Christ, to put my faith, my hope for my life in his hands. This morning, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that he came to die for my sins, to forgive me of my sins. This morning, God, I, I received that forgiveness in my life. This morning, I recognize that he made promises to come back for me, and he has. This morning, he's come back for me to rescue me, to give me a new life, and to set my feet on a path that he would never leave me, and he'd never forsake me. This morning, I put my hope in him put my life in his hands. I put my future in his hands and I trust in him to bring me safe all the way to the end. In good times and bad, in the joyful moments and in the sad, I will hope in him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you did that this morning, that impulse that wanted to make the Apostle Paul go to Jerusalem, if you opened your life to Christ and put your hope in him, that impulse now lives in you. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. He wants to guide you and he wants to lead you. And we'd love a chance. Maybe you don't know anybody here. Maybe you know somebody here. If you know somebody here and you came here, why don't you let them know, hey, I I prayed that prayer at the end with Keith. If you don't know somebody here, I'm gonna be hanging around the front. Come, Come and find me just let me know that. We'd love to be able to just encourage you in that and help you take your next steps. But thank you for being here. Thank you guys for joining us this morning to celebrate God's great message of repentance. It's a good thing, right? And faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.